for the very, for the very opening sections of Proverbs, um, all of these son from father language, my son, your mother's teaching, my teaching. In the opening sections of Proverbs, there is a, a clear indication of a father-son relationship with wisdom from a loving parent to be conveyed to his son. But in these opening sections of Proverbs, and I think this extends in through all of Solomon's chapters, we must remember this is not just a father to a son, but a king who is writing. So that in a king writing to his son, it would be, it would be a father preparing his son who would be king. So if we think about Solomon having a son, what is it that this son will grow up to be? Well, this son would be from the line of David, most immediately from Solomon. So as Solomon is writing these words to his son, he's writing them that his son might be formed by the word and directed in wisdom in the fear of the Lord that the son would one day be a righteous king. The book of Proverbs is written for people to walk in reverence to God. And yet there are occasions, like in the language tonight, where we're reminded that the immediate receiver of the words of Father Solomon was his son from the line of David. And this language of king tonight unites our unit. You probably noticed in verses 10 through 15, as it was being read a moment ago, the word king appearing nearly in every verse. In fact, the only verse in our unit tonight where the, king, the word king is missing is in verse 11. I still think it is connected to this overall unit. But the king is the object of the exhortations tonight and the prohibitions. In Deuteronomy 17, here's the reminder for the future leaders over Israel. When he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Pause. What that would take is uh, what that would take is time to write the Pentateuch, the Torah. So the Genesis through Deuteronomy becomes the writing project for the king to copy out. And then the words go on in Deuteronomy 17, and it, this copy of the law, shall be with the king, and he shall read it all his days, that he may learn to fear the Lord. There's a phrase we're concerned about with Proverbs, fearing the Lord. That he, the king, may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, and that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So this means that the king of Israel is to have the joyful burden of the meditation upon and internalization of the word of God and not just for his benefit. But we've said before, like in the book of Psalms, as goes the king, so goes the people. So this means, like in Deuteronomy 17, if he won't turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, but keeps the word of God, it's so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So that for the establishment of his throne... There is a concern for righteousness in the heart of the king. The king language tonight does have an initial meaning and significance for the Israelites who first read these words. They needed to be concerned that the one ruling over them would be a son of David who was righteous. And it will not surprise you tonight that I'm also going to interpret these verses Christologically. 
that when we look at the one who would be the receiver and embodier of the righteous rule of a king, there will be none greater than the Lord Jesus. The one who would be from the family of David, who would be a son from David's line, certainly through Solomon himself, and who would perfectly live out righteousness and authority. So we're going to consider on those levels, as we do with Psalms and Proverbs, what, what are these historical matters initially, but also in the trajectory of the Word of God, how might these things work out in the person and work of Christ? So let's look together at verses 10 and 11, the king's commitment to righteousness. When this word king is used, we're talking about a particular kind of king with certain concerns in his heart. So it might sound like an oracle is on the lips of a king without any like, descriptions of what this king is like. But when it talks about his mouth not sinning in judgment, and in verse 12, it's an abomination to kings to do evil, and in verse 13, he loves righteous lips, well, we're getting this, uh, this momentum morally about the king. What kind of king is this? Well, this is a righteous king. That's the king we have in mind, not just any ruler, for we know there are many rulers, many kings who would not care one lick about righteousness, who who would just be committed to whatever they need to get practically, and the end justifies the means. So here you have a different commitment, a commitment to righteousness in the heart. And in verses 10 and 11, the king's commitment to righteousness works out this way. An oracle is on the lips of a king, and his mouth doesn't sin in judgment, which means he guides his people wisely. The king has to make all sorts of decisions, and uh, you know the heaviness is the decisions he's going to make is going to affect everybody under his rule. It's going to affect his administration, so he's going to invite counsel, Lord willing, for him to deliberate wisely. And, and yet, nevertheless, the king is the king. So his authority is going to be so far-reaching that everybody in his kingdom is going to be the receiver of the implications of his decisions. Here, then, is a righteous king who has righteous judgments, which means he, he engages with, in his mouth with wisdom and not folly. There's not error in his judgment. You think, well, that just sounds too good to be true. What kind of ruler is this? Because even in David's day, Solomon's day, these are kings from the line of David onward. These were not sinless kings. But I I think the point in verse 10 is that the weighty word talked about here as an oracle. An oracle comes from the king's lips. It's like a decision, this pronouncement. And when the king makes a pronouncement, it's different from someone in the kingdom's household that makes a pronouncement. No matter how revered the local blacksmith might be, or the owner of this particular booth in the marketplace, no matter how prominent and how skilled, when the king says something, his word just weighs differently. His word just weighs differently. So his word here is called an oracle, and we're used to seeing that word caught up with prophets. We're used to hearing prophets receiving an oracle. And then declaring what the word of God is. But you see, the reason this word here is appropriate isn't because the king is sinless. It's because in Deuteronomy 17, the king's decisions are to be shaped by his knowledge and meditation on the word. Right? So he's meditating on the word of God, internalizing the scriptures. And as he's being shaped by the word of God, you know what his pronouncement should be? Those overflowing out of his devotion to the Lord's word. I don't think this is meant to go the direction that some in the medieval era took verse 10. Verse 10 was wrongly applied to a concept sometimes called the divine right of kings. 
Maybe you've heard this kind of phrase before, where there are kings throughout the medieval era that would say, well, you know what? We're the ones in power, and you know what the Bible says? What we say goes. So it's like, listen, our words, our pronouncement, there's no error in them, and so you just need to submit to our authority. And it was this appeal of a divine right in that uh, monarchical system. The kingly line of David is different. The kingly line of David is one in which God has entered into a covenant and promises with the king. In the promise to bring about an anointed one. I think this verse would be wrongly used then uh, by those throughout history who would claim some sort of divine right as king. The kingship in the house of David is set apart by God. And the king meditating on the Torah, internalizing the words of God, means what he says, while not exactly like a prophet, it seems that the king has a kind of prophetic function where he's to exhort and guide the people in righteousness. Again, it's so that he and his children would live long in the land. So all of this covenant language, it's uniquely applied to the salvation historical moment of the Davidic dynasty. I don't think it's meant to burst the bounds of the Davidic dynasty and apply to just rulers throughout the world and kings throughout the medieval era who say, well, you know what? This would be a really convenient verse to put on uh, you know, the, the bulletin board as people go into the palace. Like, Just as a reminder, my words don't err. You know, my judgment is sure. That's not the direction of the application. But it is to emphasize that the king's weighty words as one loving and knowing the Torah were to guide the people in wisdom and therefore not in folly and into judgment. The king has an interest not only in establishing righteousness in his own practice, but in seeing righteousness prevail horizontally among those in his kingdom. This is what verse 11 is about. Verse 11 and 12 connect this way. The king's personal commitment to righteousness And the ensuring of righteousness practiced more broadly with scales and practices commercially that are just. So verse 11 reads this way. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. See, the king's commitment to righteousness is not because the king simply sees righteousness as having some utility. Some kind of practical value. Ultimately... The king's commitment to righteousness has to do with the source of all that is just and right. So where does the notion of justice and righteousness come from? This is an important question, especially in our time, where there's much concern about rights and human rights throughout the world. What is it that establishes human rights and dignity? You're not going to get that from a Darwinian worldview. But you are going to get that if there is a creator of all things who has made us in his image and endowed us with dignity and honor as his image bearers. We all of a sudden can see that righteousness and justice become quite slippery on the sinking sands of a closed universe and biochemical combinations with random and arbitrary results. And you can't ground righteousness and justice in those things. It's just subjective free for all might makes right. But for the Most High God, for the God who reigns over Solomon's uh, own administration, Solomon says, a just balance and scales, where is that ultimately rooted? Not in Solomon. Solomon needs to apply those things because those concepts are derived from God. 
They are the Lord's. And therefore, if justice is from the Lord, then that means our desire to live in the honor and glory of God, to walk reverently before him, must mean the pursuit of just actions with one another. We certainly know from the ancient Near East a command like this was necessary or an observation like this had a foreboding tone to it because people could easily be taken advantage of. Here you go into the marketplace and you think the weight is being measured out in a certain way and yet someone's taking advantage. The person has messed with what's in the bag and all of a sudden you think you're getting a certain amount but you're really not. You're not getting all that you think you paid for or they can finagle the scales in a certain way where you're paying more than you ought to have But it looks like when you read how many pounds or grams are on the side, it looks like that's what it says. But you see, the person is deceiving you. Someone has messed with the balances and the scales. This means in verse 11, the reason people should care about righteous actions and transactions with one another is because justice and righteousness are from God. And to reject righteous dealings with one another is to defy the Lord and to engage in sinful behavior toward one another. This is not a love of neighbor, but an exploitation of neighbor. So all the weights in the bag are his work. Proverbs is concerned about commercial transactions from time to time. Chapter 11, verse 1 says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Think about that for a moment. A false balance, which means you're, you're coming up to a setting where you're going to buy something and it's going to be weighed and the charge is going to be given. But see, somebody's, somebody's got the upper hand on you. They've messed with the scales. So the balance is false and you don't know it. Well, it says here a false balance. That would be your treatment toward one another. That's an abomination to the Lord. So that our horizontal activity toward one another has a vertical provocation of God when the balance is false. Chapter 20, verse verse 10. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So there you have it again. Later on in that same chapter, chapter 20, verse 23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. You know what the, the Bible is concerned about is that in our dealings with one another, we not love money more than people. That we not try to get the upper hand on someone to just take advantage of them. Because that's, that's a gross act of neighbor-to-neighbor activity. It's certainly not one of love, but one of taking advantage and exploitation. In verse 11, the king has an interest not just in personal righteousness, but to recognize that throughout his kingdom there is activity that we want to promote as just, as righteous. In fact... Not only is the king's commitment to righteousness given in verses 10 and 11, language of love and hate is even more clear in Proverbs 16, 12 through 13. Proverbs 16, 12 through 13, these two verses are about what the king hates and loves. And it says here, it's an abomination to kings to do evil. We say, wait a second, I know plenty of rulers. It's not an abomination to them. Again, we're talking about a certain kind of king, right? We've got to carry through all of these verses the ideal king. And the ideal king is one who fears the Lord. The ideal king is one who's committed personally to righteousness. The ideal king is one who wants to see justice flourish. And therefore, when people do what is evil, the king's moral sensibilities are rightly oriented. So that the king is provoked. He doesn't wink at unrighteousness and he's like, yeah, I see what you did there. It's okay. You're getting what's yours. It's an abomination to righteous kings when people do what is evil. 
This means that these, these people are envisioning the kind of ruler over them who governs and administers in a way where he does not wink at unrighteousness. He loathes injustice. Because he knows that sin hurts people. He knows that unrighteousness diminishes our dignity as image bearers. He knows that when we take advantage of another person, we're not showing them love. We are pursuing whatever greedy end at the expense of another person. So we're not living as faithful image bearers in that way. A king who has his righteous wits about him, who's committed to righteousness because he loves the word of God, it's an abomination to kings to do evil. They recoil at the idea. The king is living out the language of Lady Wisdom in chapter 8. Wisdom says in chapter 8, verse 7, For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. And the king, therefore, has embraced wisdom, hasn't he? If the king sees evil and it's an abomination to him, then the king is living out the wisdom of Lady Wisdom earlier in the book. The The rest of verse 12 says this, It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. I want to connect that line to Deuteronomy 17 that I read from earlier. The king is to learn the law, to do the law, to keep the law, that he and his children might live long in the land. Well, who are the king's children? The future kings. The line of David. That for the preservation of the covenant line of kings... He says here in verse 12, the throne is established by righteousness. They they should understand that if they don't love the law, if they don't internalize the Torah, if instead they defy the law of God and live in unrighteousness and they don't care about injustice, then why should they expect the throne to be established for long? It doesn't say the throne is just established no matter what. It says the throne is established by righteousness. So there is a firming up of or a securing of this throne when God's people, his appointed anointed one, the king, is living in righteousness. In verse 13, righteous lips are the delight of a king. And you say, well, not every king, though, right? We're not talking about every king. We're talking about this ideal king, the righteous king. You know what the righteous king loves? People who say what is righteous. They love what is true. In other words, the righteous lips of those around him are the delight of a king, and the king would be surrounded by people of various stripes. He would have people in his administration. He would have people who were particular counselors about various internal and domestic and international matters. And the king needs to want what is good and true. If he's delighted by what should delight him, then we have a king who fears the Lord. In other words, righteous lips are the delight of a king because this is a king who loves what he ought to love. Look at the rest of the line. And he loves him who speaks what is right. Doesn't mean that speaking what is right is always going to feel good to the king. Doesn't mean it's always going to be something he wants to hear, but he's committed to what is true and good. And that means it's going to bode well for him because people around him are just not going to be a bunch of yes people. Oh, yes, king. You know, what do you think the king wants to hear? Let's just say that. We want to keep our heads. Okay. But instead, righteous lips are the delight of this king. So the people can rest in the comfort that the king is committed to something greater than the king's own rule. The king is committed to righteousness. What a blessing that is for those around him. 
We can see in our own world how wily things can get. Because if, let's say, a ruler recognizes that something going on that is unrighteous and particular words around him that are unrighteous are actually going to be to his advantage. Let me conceal this and let me cover. Whatever kings in present and ancient days learned that, hey, you know what, if people are going to be committed to the truth, that's going to be really bad for me in this situation. Like if they start just speaking what is wise and good and true, I don't know how the implications are going to be for me. So I'm not going to commit myself to what is true, but simply what will preserve the image. What's just going to continue advancing the narrative? The delight of the righteous king are lips that speak what is right. And the king's love is what you'd want it to be. He loves the one who speaks what is right. We recognize that even in the Old Testament, the kings from David's line were not all characterized by righteous lips and righteous deeds or surrounded by those who spoke righteously. This is a kind of paradigm and an ideal held out that we would say, oh Lord, bring us this kind of king. And in the answer to this prayer, I think the Lord Jesus is God's remedy to the unrighteous rulers of the world and the one who comes to bring justice who is committed to justice in his heart. We've seen what the king loves and hates in verses 12 and 13. Look at the king's authority over death and life. A king's wrath is a messenger of death in chapter 16, 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. This, this is assuming we remember that in the ancient days, the king's authority could be exercised against you in such a way that today is your last day. Like the king can be, do away with him, and he can order you out, and either to gallows or to be beheaded or whatever, but the king's wrath, if you were to provoke the king, well, his wrath is like a messenger of death for you. Your life was lived under the authority of this ruler. So this means people who are wise know how to not anger the king. I don't think this means that they're just shallow flatterers of the king. I think the word wise is truly meant to be in coherence with the rest of Proverbs so far. This is a true person who fears the Lord, this wise person, and and they know how to conduct themselves with their words and actions to honor God And not to unnecessarily provoke the king. In other words, they're not going to let their lips or their actions run amok and astray to where they find themselves realizing long term. I think I may have just brought an end to myself through what I've done. The king's wrath is a messenger of death and a wise man will appease it. Think of different rulers in the Old Testament. One commentator points out several names. The cupbearer and the chief baker in the story of Joseph who were dealt with wrathfully by the Pharaoh. Uh, The uh, uh, particular king Saul and Ahimelech in 1 Samuel 22. Or Haman and King Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 7, when Haman is ordered by the king to be hanged. You, You think about how the king's wrath, when provoked, even in the Old Testament there are stories of how that doesn't go well for those who were the fools. A wise man will appease The king's anger. But not only is the king's authority over death, we're talking about verses 14 and 15, the king's authority over death and life. Verse 15, in the light of a king's face, there's life. Verses 14 and 15 are the contrast. 
depending on how someone is approaching the king, it could mean their death or it could mean their life and vitality. And here, vitality of life is reinforced in verse 15. In the light of the king's face, there's life. I think this is meant to echo earlier scripture. Because the priests at the temple were to pray the blessing over the people of God, that the face and countenance of God would be upon the people, lifted up over them, and that peace and life and graciousness from God would be the result. In the light of the king's face, there is a sense in which this king, this king from David's line, is in a unique moment and role in salvation history. In the light of the king's face, there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So in addition to the blessing of Aaron in Numbers 6, 24 to 27, here you have this language of Solomon that I think alludes back to that. This is the favor of the king. And if you had the king's favor, that would go really well with you. If you had favor from the king upon you, that was like clouds bringing spring rain. We don't mean stormy clouds here that are foreboding. That's not what the line ends with. Verse 15, bringing spring rain was desirable. You wanted those clouds. Okay, It would be bad for your harvest if those clouds didn't come. So you needed those clouds in the spring, which would be around March and April. You wanted those clouds because of the refreshment that it brought. So this symbolizes refreshment and favor. In the light of the king's face, there is life. Now, in, in this uh, section of verses 10 through 15 that we've looked at, let's think again about the historical element and then move to some Christological comments. In the historical element, Solomon is writing to his son, and his son will one day be king from David's line. What kind of king is his son to be? Well, he's making observations for his young boy. He's saying, listen, your words have a weight to them, like an oracle, let's say, more so than just anybody in the land. So you need to speak what is righteous and wise. Don't lead your people into judgment and folly. And you need to be concerned not just with your own personal commitment to righteousness, but that justice throughout the land would be something you desire to see. Because ultimately, my son Justice and righteousness are from God. It doesn't just originate within the concepts of a human being. Well, I think we should have something like just and righteous transactions. Why would that be a good idea? To say something that is, that is like that to be good or evil, to say something is righteous or unrighteous, is implying a standard. And in chapter 16, the standard is given in verse 11. It's from the Lord. The Lord is the standard of righteousness and justice. And then in verse 12, it's as if Solomon is to be in, in, uh, internalizing within his son here. My son, don't delight in what is evil. When people do what is evil, it should, be, it should cause you to recoil. Let that be an abomination to kings. Be the sort of king who exercises his authority justly. In verse 13, the king's lips... I'm sorry, not the king's lips, but righteous lips that are the delight of a king means surround yourself with those who are wise so that when they speak what is right and wise, you will delight in wisdom because your commitment is not just to the projected administration's image, but your commitment is to what is true. And then in verse 15, 14 and 15, it's as if I think he could say to his son, remember your authority. Remember that with your authority... People's lives could be brought to an end or your favor upon them 
could raise them up to vitality and flourishing that they would most desire like clouds in the spring on their harvest. So that's the kind of king they're to desire and pray for. Now beyond the historical moment, in the larger trajectory of Scripture, we see that there is only one king from the line of David that perfectly embodies righteous rule and authority. It's not Solomon or his immediate son either. It's of course the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us this ideal. And you say, okay, well let's flip to the narratives. Where are the kings who live this out? Well, you're just going to keep searching and keep searching and keep searching. And your list is just going to have blanks. Okay, There's just not a king who lives this out in the Old Testament. You must wait until Matthew declares that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and son of Abraham. So, okay, here's a king. That's what a son of David is. He's Jesus the Christ. And therefore, we look at these lines in light of the Lord Jesus, and we realize with the weight of his words, the lips of a king, his mouth never sins in judgment. Think of all the things Jesus would say. And we only have selections of his teachings and not the entirety of all that he would have spoken. But his words never directed anyone into folly. His words never ensnared anyone with temptation. His words always rightly understood and applied the scriptures. Whether he was dealing with the devil in the wilderness or the Pharisees in the temple courts. Jesus always knew rightly how to speak and apply the word of God. His mouth never sinned in judgment. His application in life horizontally with others would have always been characterized by just dealings. He would have never sought to take advantage of another person. Instead, to the surprise of others... Those who were excluded and taken advantage of, the Lord Jesus in his ministry constantly reaches out to them and includes them in with astounding hospitality and mercy. He does not play the worldly games of those around him, but he walks with perfect justice. And then in verse 12, it's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Well, we're thinking about the Davidic throne, not just thrones in general, but the throne of David where there is a covenant and a promise from 2 Samuel 7. Well, who's that offspring from David's line? Not the immediate son Solomon's writing to. But only the Lord Jesus would be able to live out a righteousness that establishes this throne. He is the son of David who reigns forever. In verse 13, he loves righteousness. He loves righteous words. And his delight in love is for those who speak what is right. Because the heart of Christ is rightly ordered toward what is good. He himself is the standard of righteousness. And we recognize in verses 14 and 15, what is the authority of Christ like? The authority both to judge and to deliver. In fact, Jesus says... To those around him in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, don't fear those who could just destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both soul and body. In other other words, the authority of life and death is ultimately in the hands of the living God. In his son, Jesus Christ, we see the glory of the incarnation where the words of Christ bring both judgment and life. King's wrath is a messenger of death. 
We see in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 2, the kings of the earth are told to tremble and fear and to kiss the sun, lest they perish in the way. They say about the sun in Psalm 2, his wrath is quickly kindled. And so they should fear the sun and submit to the sun. All the kings of the earth should know of the, the surpassing rule of the king of kings. So indeed, his authority is not only over judgment, but in verse 15, favor in life. Oh, how wonderful it is to say of Jesus that in the light of the king's face, there is life. What a glorious gospel pronouncement. Why do we want to turn people to Jesus? Here's an evangelistic reason from Proverbs 16, 15. Because in the face of Jesus, there is life. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, for this is a king, unlike any other king that's ever walked this earth, this is a king in whose face is life and whose favor upon sinners brings the kind of vitality and refreshment of soul and life that we need and long for. He is altogether righteous. In fact, Christ is like a prophet with the oracle of his words on his lips, being righteous and never sinful, never erring. His words and actions are also priestly in that he is the one whose favor and light is upon the people, reminding us of the blessing of Aaron, the priest in Numbers. And of course, Christ is not only prophet and priest, he is certainly king and son of David, the one with perfect authority, the word of God on the lips of Christ. I love the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. When you listen to Proverbs 16, verse 15, in the light of the king's face, there is life. The reason this is a hope giving statement for us is because these truths and observations and wisdom are embodied by the Lord Jesus himself. So we rejoice in the reign of Christ. We rejoice in his kingdom of heaven that has come and is at hand. We rejoice in the delightful, morally upright heart of Christ from which come words and actions that are perfectly just, unlike any other king Israel had ever had preceding him. We have a king whose throne is established by righteousness and whose face, if we were to look to Christ in faith, we would find the light of the king's face granting us life and favor. It is all glorious mercy. It is indeed true that principles like these verses of just and righteous balances and scales for commercial transactions. We look at this and we think, yes, how important it is socially to be able to trust the transactions we have between buyers and sellers. When that kind of understanding breaks down and people can't trust exchanges commercially, we are in a world of trouble. And indeed, it is necessary for rulers in society and political positions to love what is good and true and righteous and to want the lips of those around them speaking and prioritizing what is righteous, good and true, because that is a blessing for the people at large as well. And when people are in social and political places of influence and they don't care for what is true and they embody unrighteousness and it doesn't bother them to wink at evil or cover up evil, this provokes the wrath and judgment of God. There are then principles that we recognize to be true from ancient days into modern days. But above all, the Christological significance of the text shines brightly. When shall come a king like this? And the answer is, they named him Jesus. And he is the son of David. Look full in his wonderful face. There is life and light and favor for sinners. Let's pray.